Hey, welcome to the show. It's Monday, and this is the Metaphorical Throat Clearing. We are going to have a fantastic conversation today, but if you are listening in and you feel like you missed the first few seconds of the show, don't rewind. All I've said is nonsense, because I want your brain to tune in. Here we go. Thanks for listening to TRBM. Today's episode is going to start a series of podcasts that I think, I believe, is going to change your life forever. If you've ever watched an author read in public and felt bored, T.R.B.M. is the antidote. That reminds me of a dark evening where we all drink and howl at the best writing. T.R.B.M. is for writers or time-lapse or scavengers with guitar solos and spotlight were for bands what chainsaws and icebox were for sculptors what does TRBM stand for? the raisin biscotti melts talked rice burner mechanic or treacherous roots before me you decide for the foreseeable future we are going to be discussing the power of leveraging libraries to live your writerly dream. And today's episode is part one in a long series of podcasts. We're going to mix emotion with hard facts and data. We are going to have interviews. We are going to have dances. We're going to have burning fires in the sky. Actually, there won't be any dances or burning fires, but the rest we're going to have in spades. Also, if you're listening and you know the etymology of the phrase in spades, I would love for you to drop a comment in the show notes comments area. And that's a perfect spot to say that if you're only experiencing the show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or Stitcher, and you've not visited the host page on Substack, you're missing out on as much as 50% of the content that makes this show a valuable asset. If you visit Substack and subscribe to my show there, you'll receive two podcast emails per week, chock full of useful information and resource for authors. Click any of the instances of the word Substack to visit the homepage. And that's for you who are listening on other apps like Apple or Stitcher. You go right to the show notes and just touch the word Substack if you're on your phone, which most listeners are. Touch it right there. Boom. You're going to go to my Substack, sign up, and you are locked in for great content. It's my commitment to you to deliver the highest quality content and to only pitch the best resources for your consideration. I'm not afraid to talk about my novels, but aside from my own published books, the only thing I'm ever going to promote to you are resources I've personally used and thrived by. And I think if you've been listening to the show for more than an episode, you know I'm not afraid to spend money on programs if I think that they might help me sell more books. I'm not afraid to spend money on tools if I think they'll help me edit better or write better. Any of those kind of things. So if you hear me give a shout out to something, one, I'll always have a link to it in my show notes. Two, I probably make money if you sign up off of that link. And three, I've used it myself and benefited. So it seems like it's probably a win-win. I understand 99% of you are never going to buy anything from my show. But the 1% of you who do are going to be the 1% of you who have the most success. Boy, I sound really salesy right now. You'll have to forgive me. I came from a career 20 years selling everything from replay cards at Sam Goody to insurance policies for workers' comp at Applied Underwriters. So you know 
that the top resource, the one that I'm highest on, the one that I love the most, is a program called AMMO by Steve Piper. It's Author Marketing Mastery Through Optimization, or the acronym AMMO. If you want to sell your novels to strangers at a profit and earn a living as a novelist, AMMO is the only assured choice. I've said it before, I'll keep saying it. I was part of the self-publishing school with Chandler Bolt. I have tried the self-publishing formula with Mark Dawson. Great stuff over there, but not guaranteed, not assured. And okay, let's talk about the word guarantee. There's a lot that goes into it, but I would put my money on ammo over self-publishing formula every single day. I'd put it over Kindlepreneur. I would put it over Kickstarter. I would put it over everything I have ever tried. And you know that I've tried a lot of things. Yes, I am an affiliate. I host the ammo podcast. I'm going to be high on it. But you can go back and listen to 18 months prior of podcasts of me banging my head against the wall, trying different things until I found the MO program. So the reason I'm high on it, the reason that I'm affiliated with it, the reason I host the podcast for it is because it works. If you are looking at Substack, you're going to see some charts and graphs of my actual sales numbers. It's the amount of money that I have made off of my books through Ammo. I've already done a previous episode where I talked about the money I spent to do this program. I've never claimed to be fully profitable yet. I'm getting there. I have been profitable for a month straight now. And so what you're going to see is kind of what I personally think is a startling sum of money that I've made using the ammo program. And it's available to you. If you're one of my listeners who can honestly say that you haven't sold more than a hundred copies of your book or all of your books over the sum of your career, this can fix the problem. There are obviously some caveats. You have to be a quality writer who pays for editing, who pays for cover design, who pays for formatting. You have to pay money to make great books. And all of that is going to feed into the conversation that we'll be having over the coming months about libraries. Because you can't pitch your book to a library if you don't publish top quality work. Now, the good news is, if you are a traditionally published author who's listening to this show and trying to determine, is this for me? The answer is yes, this is for you, especially the library series, because with this formula, you have an opportunity to do some free marketing to a captive audience. And what is a captive audience? It's an audience that has to buy what you're selling. It's your job to make what you're selling appealing enough that they buy yours and not somebody else's. I learned this from my days in insurance. Okay, consider if you sell workers' compensation insurance like I did at Applied Underwriters, then you have a captive audience. Every single employee who works for a legal employer in the United States, and I don't know exactly how it works, but I used to talk with people from Australia and Canada and other places as well, and it's pretty similar in major markets. You are required as an employer to carry workers' compensation insurance for the injury of your employees. So when I call into an insurance agency, I have to convince the agency that my workers' comp is better than X's workers' comp. This is the same thing you're doing with a library. If you're an author, when you call into a library, they don't exist without books. They can't serve their patronage. They can't live out their mission without books. So the only thing that you have to do is convince them that your books are better books than the books that somebody else 
has approached them with. And I know that that sounds really difficult, but why did you write a book if you didn't think it was better than the other books out there? And that includes novelists, folks. Do I think that I write better books than Stephen King? Ooh, you know I love Stephen King. I have to be honest. I aspire to write books as good as what Stephen King writes. And I believe that time will tell the story of the quality of my writing. And Stephen King has had some missteps, so maybe my first book wasn't the best book that I'll ever write. Maybe my second book is on par with Tommyknockers. I don't know, but I do believe, generally speaking, that my novels are really great. And I hope if you're listening to this show, you believe that too. Why else are you writing? But look, it can be hard. It can be hard to doubt yourself. And when you're going to reach out to a library, this is what you call the low-hanging fruit. So psychologically speaking, some people actually have a harder time with low-hanging fruit than they do with the biggest reaches. Because if you can't get the low-hanging fruit, what does it mean about you as a person? So let's go ahead and dive into the numbers. On just a basic overview, there's over 117,000 libraries in the United States alone. And I'd love to hear from listeners like Juliet Willows how robust Canada's library system is, because I believe that there is low-hanging fruit there as well. For the purpose of fiction and creative nonfiction authors, which includes all of your biographies, your sales books, things like that, then obviously novels, graphic novels, that number is going to be about 90,000 U.S. libraries suitable for carrying our books. And listen, I doubt that there are any academic authors lurking around on TRBM, but their work would make up the balance of those libraries. So if you subtract 90,000 from 117,000, the remaining libraries are the ones that solely publish things for your scientific journals, your doctors, medical libraries, things of that nature. So you're looking at about 90,000 libraries that are going to be a potential audience for your book. And because I'm embarking on a deep dive of how authors, both traditional and self-published, can get their books in library, uh, it's, it's such a big topic that we're going to have to do what they say about the elephant. You know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? That's what we're going to do here. But I want to stress again, if you're a traditionally published author, this may be one of the most important episodes I've ever recorded for you. If you're a self-published author, still the same thing. But I just know that traditionally published authors automatically try to think of reasons why they shouldn't market because they make such a slim margin compared to self-published authors. It's funny because they've had a lot of back-end work so that you know the book is at least going to be really well edited. If you're traditionally published, marketing to libraries is free. It costs you your time, but it does not cost you money. That's not going to be true of any other kind of marketing that you can effectively do. You might argue that being on social media is an effective way to market, but I think if you take a good long look in the mirror, you understand that posting on Twitter can get you a lot of traction in terms of conversation but not a ton of traction in terms of sales. I think you're looking at around a 0.0001% turnaround on any kind of social media. I've continued to hear that some folks have a great experience on TikTok, and I believe that that can work. I continue to try to search for guests who have used TikTok effectively. I will continue to do that. If you know somebody who's used it effectively, send them my way. We will have a conversation with them about how they have leveraged TikTok to sell books. But for now, we're gonna go with proven statistics. So why are libraries such a great place for you? There are a handful of reasons. Libraries love to work with trade publishers. Now I'm speaking to you trade published authors. 
love to work with trade publishers. Their entire cataloging system is based on the traditional pipeline. That means that traditionally published authors will have an easier time selling their books into libraries from a logistical standpoint. But don't fret if you're self-published because you'll maybe need to do a good deal more back-end work to make things pay off. Once you've done that work, though, and this is traditional and self-published, you have created a lifelong partnership with a loyal reader. I want to stop there for a second. A lifelong relationship with a loyal reader. Every time a library comes on board to buy your book, you have created a lifelong relationship with a loyal reader. There's caveats to everything. We're going to be doing this for weeks. So stick with me right now and realize that when you serve any reader, they stay with you. Not everybody who buys your book is going to love it. That's not a guarantee. There is something interesting about the fact that when a library buys your book, they're a certain kind of reader. They're a reader that we like to call a word of mouth reader. They love to share your work with others. The only way that they can survive is by sharing your work with others. So that's going to become part of your pitch. Put a pin in it. We'll come back to it. But libraries are a word of mouth reader. They love you. They need your book to survive. All you have to do is convince them that your book is the right book out of a sea of other books. And let me say, I hope this episode is so successful that libraries start to get an influx of submissions from people who start to understand the process better, and then it becomes more difficult to do this. But as of right now, the only thing stopping you, whether you're traditional or self-published, from being in libraries is your willingness to work the process. That will change if people catch on to this episode, share it with others, and understand the power behind it. Then there might be more competition. Then you might have to up your game. Then you might have to write better books. But oh me, oh my, would that be so horrible if competition forced us to write better books? I don't think so. All right. So now let's go a little bit deeper into this discussion. We're going to stay out of the weeds, and I am focusing mostly on emotional payoff for today. But I want you to do a little bit of visualizing with me. And in order to do that, I'm going to use myself as an example. I wrote The Nine Lives of Marva DeLonghi. There's going to be links in the show notes to that if I haven't already mentioned. Uh, I also wrote The Eight Ball Magic of Susie Q, which I quietly published on Amazon earlier this week. You can buy all of them anywhere, my website, whatever. Links, they're going to be there. I'm going to move right past it, but I'm using myself as an example. The Nine Lives of Marva DeLonghi uses the word fuck probably 95 to 100 times over the course of 300 pages. The eight ball magic of Susie Q is pretty close to that. There is rape. There is murder. There is violence. There is brutality. My books will not ever be going into an elementary school library. I weep. I'm sad, but it's true. If you write YA, you're probably more well positioned to reach all 90,000 of those libraries that we mentioned earlier. But I did a little bit of math for you. I worked on the internet. I did some searching. I looked at the American Library Association. And what I came up with is that there's probably 45,000 branches, half of the 90,000, that would be an ideal target for my book. So now I want you to visualize yourself. Whatever kind of book you're writing, it's likely not going to be less than 45,000 libraries because I'm all the way at the top of the most prohibitive type of fiction. My fiction is not a good fit 
for many, 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 many readers. And I know that. And I'm okay with that. Maybe you saw my Instagram post from earlier last week where I did contemplate if my character Lyle eats too much food. I've gotten at least three comments from readers that it was distracting. One person said it was annoying. One person said it was juvenile, that it seemed like a rough draft. It was annoying. That was tough, but okay, whatever. I still think I have 45,000 libraries that are going to love the work that I have written if I do my job well at putting it in front of them. So visualize, what would it mean for your writing business if you had 45,000 eager readers whose sole purpose was to share your book by word of mouth? How would it feel if 10,000 of those readers bought not just your paperback, but also your ebook and your audiobook? And what would it feel like if, if every time you launched a new novel, you could send a single email to that network of readers and expect even bank on 20,000 sales? Does that frame it up for you? Because I get goosebumps just saying it. I hope you get goosebumps hearing it. That's your readership if you build strong relationships with libraries. We've got so much time in this topic. I'm not going to discuss right now what it means to have a book in a library. But the fact that it's free to a reader to grab it, to check it out, to see it, that's something. And... Maybe a smaller fraction of you will identify with this, but I know for me it's true. In fact, let me illustrate with a story how true this is. Libraries sell books. I went to the Spokane Public Library on the South Hill, the South Hill branch. Call them, shout them out, let them know. I miss them, I love them. My son, my oldest son, was just barely walking at the time. So this is many years ago. I was working sunglasses sales. I was a route driver. I hadn't even gotten to the management position yet. And what I would do is I would go to the library and I would find a stack of audiobooks that I could check out from the library because audiobooks are freaking expensive and I couldn't afford to buy them, but I could afford to check them out from my local library. Now, this is before you had easy access to mobile devices. And so the, these were like CDs. I had a CD thing in my car that I would pop the CDs into and I would listen to audiobooks. My son, my oldest son, is walking around the library and we're trying to keep him busy entertained while I'm searching for the books that I want. And he happens to reach onto the shelf from his tiny little height. So it's the M section. They're down low, second shelf from the floor, and he plucks a book, an audiobook, off the shelf. The Tropic of Capricorn by Henry Miller. I said, hey, it must be fate. My kid picked it off the shelf. If you've ever read the book, uh, Henry Miller might be the only rival for the more vulgar author uh, than me. <laughs> he really, really took the cake. But I'll be honest, I loved the book. I fell in love so deeply with the book. It was narrated by Campbell Scott. I fell in love with Campbell Scott as a narrator because of that. I've gone on to buy audiobooks narrated by Campbell Scott that I don't know anything about the author or the story. I just know that his voice is going to be narrating it. But most importantly, on my shelf behind me in my office, in a very select, about 100 books that live with me in my office, not anywhere else in the house, I have a Grove edition, so a first printing in the United States, of the Tropic of Capricorn that my wife bought for me for my birthday, because that book meant so much to me. And I never would have met it without a library. So let me ask you again, what would it mean 
to have 45,000 opportunities for your book to be that book for me. This is powerful stuff, people. You sell your book. You get paid when a library buys your book. It doesn't count on the New York Times bestseller list. It doesn't count on the USA Today bestseller list. Is that still a thing? It doesn't count on any of the bestseller lists, but you get money and you get readers. Don't sleep on libraries. Stop wasting all your time not thinking about them. They're better than bookstores. I hate to say this, but bookstores in America right now are letting readers down. Bookstores are letting readers down because they're ignoring self-published authors. And this is a note for you self-published authors. So if you're a trade-published author, listen with sympathy. Because a lot of us have taken a road that has put us in a position where maybe even though our book is good enough and has every right to be published by Penguin, Random House, FSG, Little Brown, Knopf, we have to go the self-published route. That doesn't mean it's an inferior product, but it does mean that when we approach our local bookstores, they try to extort us by saying, oh, we'll, we'll carry them on consignment. If you'll drop off 10 copies of your book, we'll shelf it, uh, but we can't be responsible for shrink. So if it gets stolen, we're not going to compensate you. They don't do that for the, the, the major publishers. No, the people who are 100% skin in the game get fucked over. Pardon my French. Bookstores need to up their game. If you are a bookstore owner listening to this podcast, please rethink your position. There are ways to vet self-published authors to make sure you're getting quality work. And that's exactly what we're going to be going into over the rest of this series. Over the rest of this series, we're going to be talking about making sure that your work is up to snuff so that you can get into libraries, have a good reputation, and continue to build your audience through this channel. But honestly, you can take a lot of this information and apply it to bookstores if you want. I'm not going to spend my time on bookstores until I see a trend that bookstores are going to change their behaviors. But I will spend time advertising on Facebook. I will spend time advertising on YouTube. I will spend time advertising on TikTok. As I see opportunities present themselves, there are readers out there right now who maybe don't have as strong of feelings as I do about bookstores or traditional publishing or the gaps in the process. But unconsciously, they're voting with their dollars. Your readers more than likely have a bias toward reading self-published work. Because in self-published work, you're able to make real stakes. You're able to make real flawed people. You're able to write true conflict. You're able to write disastrous evil. You're able to do things that in the traditionally published world right now, they're trying to shave off all the corners so that nobody can be offended, that nobody can be hurt, that nobody can be conflicted. That's not happening in self-publishing. We're defining the market right now. All right, now I'm going off onto my soapbox. I'm going to hop off the soapbox. I'm going to close things up. Next Monday, we're going to jump into the content standards that are required for you to get your books in libraries. And if you really want to get the most out of this series of episodes, I'm going to give you a little bit of homework, okay? This is what they call the action item or the call to action. I want you to spend some time between now and next Monday researching and understanding library systems, okay? So go ahead and begin researching and understanding library systems in the United States and Canada if you want to. Please Juliet Willows, if you are listening to this episode, drop a comment in the show notes. It will actually enrich people on how they can do this process in Canada. And maybe we can even interview after you've done a little bit of research or if you know a ton about how to do this in Canada. 
Libraries can vary at the local and regional and state levels, so it is essential to gain insight into their operations, acquisition processes, and preferred formats. Until next time. Thank you for listening to TRBM. The theme music was provided by the ever-talented Christopher Talon. And hey, if you liked what you heard, share this show with other readers because what's the point of telling stories if nobody's listening? <laughs>